Well, our uh, sermon text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 7 through 11. Christ is the sure and steady anchor of our salvation. And if you have Christ, if you are trusting in Christ... With the simple childlike faith this morning, you are secure in Christ Jesus. And that anchor will never be removed. So whatever you're going through, hardship, whatever type of mercy you need this morning, just know that anchor will hold fast for you. Christ, our sure and steady anchor. So man, praise God um, for that, for what we have in, in Christ Jesus. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11. Let's pray before we read. Well, Father, we do look to you now, and we do call you Father. A better Father than any father on this planet. Better parent than any parent on this planet. We look to you now as your children looking to you in and through Christ, our sure and steady anchor. And Father, we would just ask for your blessing as we open your scriptures We would ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit in this room. We know it was your Holy Spirit that inspired men to write these words. And it's only your Holy Spirit that can help us to understand these words. We would just ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit in and through Christ now. Father, we pray and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you're just joining us, I started a few weeks ago preaching through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, just those three chapters, a little mini-series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the blessings of the Christian life is that you now have within you the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God Himself. Jesus lived, died, He rose again to pay for sin. And the second you truly trust in Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is now living within you. It's an amazing thing. But then this Holy Spirit begins to empower you in different ways. He begins to work different spiritual gifts within you. Now, some of these uh, spiritual gifts might be a little more consistent in your life, the operating throughout your Christian life, things like mercy or leadership, or some of these gifts the Spirit might give to you might be a little more occasional, operating in you just once or twice or a handful of times, maybe something like prophecy, which we'll talk about today. But the Spirit works in His people, these spiritual gifts, and the primary reason for all these gifts, if you look at verse 7 again, we looked at it closely last week, Paul says this, 
He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So all of these spiritual gifts, these manifestations of the Spirit in our lives, they are for the common good of the body of Christ. Or, as Paul says later, they're for the upbuilding of the church. These gifts are given to us so that we might strengthen and comfort and encourage one another. The gifts from the Lord. And in the verses we just read, Paul gives us this list. Nine possible gifts that the Spirit might empower in you. It's not an exhaustive list. The Bible talks in other places about other spiritual gifts that are not mentioned here. But for the purpose of the series, we are sticking uh, primarily to the gifts just in these three chapters. And for a couple of Sundays now, we are focusing in on these nine particular gifts that Paul mentions here. We're just trying to define them a little bit. We're just trying to flesh them out a little bit. We'll talk later in this series about how these might work out in our body, how we might practice them. But now just kind of describing, fleshing them out a little bit. We're not looking at these gifts in the order that Paul gave us here. I've kind of grouped these gifts in ways that I thought would be most helpful for these sermons. So last Sunday, we looked at the gifts of faith, of healings, and of miracles. If you were not here, I'd encourage you to watch that sermon on our website. We're going to look today now at three speaking gifts or speech gifts that Paul gives us here, namely the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, and then prophecy. And because the utterances of, of wisdom and knowledge are very similar, we will look at them together. And so first today we'll look at these utterances and then we'll look at prophecy. So let's think first here about the utterances of wisdom or of knowledge. If you look at verse 8 again, Paul starts his list with this. He says, for to one or to one believer or Christian is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, we don't know if that's something that's given to you and then you have it then the rest of your life, or the Lord might give it here on occasion to one believer for some reason, but the Spirit gives these things, utterance of wisdom and knowledge. And something important to note here right off the bat is that that right there is the only place in the entire Bible where those particular gifts are mentioned. The Bible just does not teach us very much, not directly anyway, about those utterances. And that means that we should probably uh, not be too dogmatic with what we believe these things to be. Some Christians are just absolutely convinced that they know exactly what they are and they will tell you even if you don't want them to. Uh, Nobody knows exactly what they are. We need to tread a little bit lightly here. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, it must be understood that these two gifts are mentioned nowhere else in scripture. This means that the only information we have about these gifts is contained in this 
verse. We have the words used to describe these two gifts, and we have the context in which the phrases occur, namely the book of 1 Corinthians. I would argue that we might have examples of them in the Bible, but no other teachings about these gifts. No interpreter, he says, anywhere has any more information than this to work with. This warns us that our conclusions will probably be somewhat tentative in any case. So we will tread a little bit lightly here with these utterances, but make some educated guesses as to what they might be. One thing that we need to consider, as Grudem says, is the context, the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Paul talks a lot in this book about wisdom and knowledge. And one of the reasons, it seems, is that the Christians in Corinth, to whom Paul was writing here, it seems they had been influenced to some degree by a Gnosticism in their area. And Gnosticism was all about wisdom and knowledge. The Greek word gnosis, as in Gnostic, it means knowledge. To the Gnostics, wisdom and knowledge, that was your path to liberation. You could supposedly be liberated from the evils of this world by attaining wisdom and knowledge. But the Gnostics pursued a very worldly type of wisdom and knowledge. It was a wisdom and knowledge not connected at all to Christ. It was just a a kind of a natural reasoning of the mind. They were obsessed with knowledge knowledge, with wisdom, learning new things. They were obsessed with rhetorical speaking skills, whatever looked wise to them. For the Gnostics then, a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah was absurd. It was absolute foolishness to the Gnostics. And the Christians in Corinth had apparently been influenced to some degree with these Gnostic ideas of wisdom and and knowledge. And so Paul addresses it here all over the book of 1 Corinthians. He talks all over this book about true wisdom and knowledge. He says that it's only found in Christ. Paul says in this book, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, all kinds of things. He says in there that Jesus is our wisdom. And he says the cross of Christ, though it might be folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, to unbelievers, well, the cross of Christ To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Christ is the very knowledge and wisdom of the one true God. And for Paul, in 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is the communicator of all true wisdom and knowledge. The Holy Spirit communicates true wisdom and knowledge to us from God, and then the Spirit communicates true wisdom and knowledge through us to other people. But that's important. In 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is the one who communicates all true wisdom and knowledge. And Paul now says here, verse 8, that the Spirit can empower certain believers with an utterance of wisdom or of knowledge. Knowledge. 
And he probably heads the list of his gifts with wisdom or knowledge because that was so important in Corinth. So the Holy Spirit can give these utterances of wisdom or knowledge. The Greek word for utterance is the word logos. It could be translated as a word or a speech or a statement. The Spirit empowering you somehow to speak words or statements of wisdom or knowledge. Then what's the difference between a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge? It's not entirely clear. If you look at the Old Testament, the first two-thirds in your Bible, we do see some distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge in the Old Testament books is more about facts. You you know some things in your mind, facts about God or about people or, or situations. You know some technical data, but wisdom then is more about the practical application of those facts to all of life. If you have wisdom, you can apply your head knowledge, your facts, to wise practical living. So there's a little distinction in the Old Testament books between wisdom and knowledge. The problem is that in the New Testament, and most importantly with Paul himself, that distinction is not as clear. Paul uses those words more interchangeably. Knowledge, wisdom, wisdom, knowledge. So whatever difference there might have been in Paul's mind between a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, we just cannot be too sure. But just catch the simple idea here behind both of these things. The simple idea with these utterances is that the Holy Spirit is somehow empowering you to speak, to utter words or statements of wisdom or knowledge. And just pause and think about how that might work out. That, that could potentially work a couple different ways. One way this might work might seem a little bit more ordinary to you and me, but it's still empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it would go something like this. The Spirit basically just empowers your speech, gives you the ability to speak with power. And, and in this case, the wisdom or knowledge that you're sharing, it's coming from within you. It's information that you've just attained through the ordinary course of life. You've gained experience as a, a Christian. You've studied God's word as a Christian. You've studied creation. You, 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 you've gained some wisdom in your life. You've, you've, you've gained some knowledge. You've stored it up within you, but... When you then speak those things to other people, the Spirit empowers you to speak with great clarity, with, with, with great insight, with, with power. A, a Spirit-empowered utterance of the wisdom or knowledge you already possess. So you share the gospel maybe on the plane with the person next to you. Now, you've already stored up the gospel in your heart. You know the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's there. You know the gospel. But in that moment when you share the gospel, you share it 
not in word only, as 1 Thessalonians 1 says, but you share it in power with the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Or you might see it in certain preachers or teachers that you, you like. They've studied the Bible like other preachers and teachers. They've hidden the word in their hearts. But when they speak, there's just something extra. There's just a little more conviction, a little more power. People in the past would have called it a holy spirit unction when they speak earnestness fervor and people just listen they just have to listen when that person opens their mouth or somebody struggling maybe in in your church or there's some dilemma in your life group and the spirit then draws up from within you something you've stored in your heart some bible verse comes to mind that you learned or or something about christ or about nature or there's some illustration that comes to your mind Or because you've gained some wisdom as a Christian, you can now see in this dilemma, you you can now see some wise path or, or course of direction or a possible answer to that dilemma. So you then speak into that dilemma. But when you speak, it just carries weight. Conviction, clarity, power... And people listen to it. You could think of maybe Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, the apostles, other early Christians had a dilemma. Do the Gentiles need to follow the Jewish laws in order to be saved? They discuss it, they're talking, they're praying, they've stored up wisdom in their hearts, so they're working on this thing. But all of a sudden, James and Peter speak into that dilemma, and everybody is silent and they know that was from God a possible example of an utterance of knowledge or wisdom that's one way these utterances might work you've stored up wisdom knowledge but the spirit then empowers you to speak it in a way that really impacts I pray for utterances of knowledge and wisdom like that when I preach Lord, will you cause the words to come out in power, in clarity, and insight, and people will just listen to them. Help me, Lord. That's that's one way they might work. But there is another possibility for how these utterances might work that would be a little more miraculous or supernatural. In, In this way, it could be that the Spirit actually gives to you supernaturally the wisdom or the knowledge that you speak. The Holy Spirit within you just sovereignly reveals to you, supplies you with some bit of information, some bit of knowledge or wisdom that you did not attain through the ordinary course of life, 
some sort of information about a situation or, or a person or, or people, something you could not, you would not know unless the Spirit just sovereignly gave it to you, dropping it into your mind at some point, revealing to you something you did not attain on your own. You then speak it, and it lands with power. And an example might be Acts chapter 5, Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter just knew somehow they were lying. He just knew it. How did he know? Well, listen, there is no indication in the text that he gained that knowledge by a normal study or experience. He just watched them when they walked in. Hmm. You look a little shifty. You, you won't look me in the eye. You're covering your mouth when you talk. I get it. You're lying to me. No, there's no indication in the text that he studied them or he had other information. Somebody wrote him an email. Hey, those guys are lying. He didn't have it. No, the clear implication in the text is that Peter just knew how the Holy Spirit somehow gave Peter this knowledge. And they walk in one after the other, and Peter just knows you are lying. It's a possible example of a more miraculous utterance of knowledge or wisdom. The Spirit just sovereignly supplying you with some sort of information. Or we could maybe think about Jesus and all the times that he knew people's thoughts. The Bible says that all over the place. Jesus knew people's thoughts. Now, a lot of people read that in the Bible and they just think Jesus is God. Of course he knows everybody's thoughts. But most theologians don't believe that that's the way it worked. Yes, Jesus is God, and Jesus, as a man, he could have just accessed his divine mind at any time. But the Scripture says that when Jesus became a man, he emptied himself somehow. He made himself nothing. The Bible says that Jesus became like us. In every way, except for sin. And if Jesus could just access his divine knowledge at any time, is he really just like us in every way? No. So most theologians believe Jesus somehow limited himself as a man to be like us. He gave up in some way his right to access at any time his divine knowledge. The reason why Jesus as a man, he did not actually know all things. His second coming, he did not know during his time on earth when that would happen. He had apparently limited somehow his knowledge. And just like us then, Jesus had to lean on the Holy Spirit for his knowledge, his insight, his power. Now, we don't know if that's exactly the case with Jesus. I think it is. And if that is the case, then when Jesus knew people's thoughts, it wasn't just because he was God. 
But because he was leaning 100% on the Holy Spirit like we need to do, and the Spirit supplied him with information. Or Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria. He just knew the facts of her life, possibly just because he was God, but more likely, I think, because that information was supplied to him by the Spirit. Similar, maybe, to what this more miraculous utterance of wisdom or knowledge might be like. You just know something. Not because you're God, but because you were leaning upon God and the Holy Spirit just supernaturally, miraculously supplies some bit of information to you that you would not, could not have known unless the Spirit supplied it to you. And pause for a second. Do you think the God of this universe could do that? Could somehow tip you off and somehow give you information, a thought, a picture, a question? that you would not have had apart from the Spirit. I absolutely believe it, and there are so many examples in history of that. Several stories like that in the life of Charles Spurgeon, great 19th century preacher. While preaching on one occasion at Exeter Hall in London, he stopped mid-sermon, and he pointed in a certain direction, and he said this, Young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. And afterwards, a very pale young man (laughs) approached and begged to speak with him in private. Placed a pair of gloves on the table and said this. It's the first time I have robbed my master. And I will never do it again. You won't expose me, sir, will you? It would kill my mother if she heard that I had become a thief. No possible way Spurgeon could have had that information apart from the Holy Spirit sovereignly, spontaneously dropping it into his mind at just the right time. Or Sam Storms tells of a time a father brought a very distraught 20-year-old son of his into Sam's office. And this man's young son now had numerous seemingly psychological problems that had just come on him recently. He was unable suddenly to perform many kind of routine activities of daily life. And Sam says that as he prayed for this young man in his office, the name Megan suddenly and very clearly came to mind. And the impression that Sam had in that moment was that this Megan was somehow part of the cause of this young man's problem. So Sam asked about the name and learned that this young man had recently had a girlfriend named Megan. 
with whom he'd had an immoral relationship and Megan was heavily involved in satanic occult practices. And Sam knew that this was maybe then a demonic influence in this young man's life. No way he would have known this apart from the Spirit sovereignly doing something. Those are just possible examples of a more supernatural, miraculous utterance of of wisdom or knowledge. The Spirit, in this case, not just empowering your speech of the wisdom knowledge that you already possess, but the Spirit actually supplying to you, giving to you sovereignly, spontaneously, some bit of wisdom or knowledge that you could not, you would not possess unless the Spirit gave it to you. An utterance of wisdom or knowledge. Now, I personally think that that latter type of stuff would fall more under the gift of prophecy, which we'll talk about in a second. The Spirit revealing things to you that you would not know otherwise. But it's certainly possible that some of those things would fall under the umbrella of these utterances. So that's just a little bit on the utterance of wisdom or knowledge. Again, we just cannot be very dogmatic with what we believe these things to be because we're just not sure. One more speech gift we'll think about here for a couple minutes then is prophecy. If you look at verse 10, Paul says, to another, or to another Christian is given the working of miracles, which we talked about last week. To another is given prophecy. So, one of the gifts, according to Paul, the Spirit might empower in believers is prophecy. Prophetic words. And and here's what we'll do with this gift of prophecy. I will leave most of this for later in the series because 1 Corinthians 14 is all about prophecy. And the gift of tongues. So we'll talk more in depth then about prophecy. I do want to touch on it now because Paul lists it here. But all I really want to do today is give kind of a simple description and some examples. And then later in the series, I'll give uh, uh, more background and the reasoning behind what I say today. So let me give you first here just a simple description of this New Testament gift of prophecy. And let me say this, this at least would be the way that the elders here with CRC would describe this spiritual gift of prophecy. There are other Christians who would describe it differently. Here's how we would describe this New Testament gift of prophecy. Sam Storm says it like this, a simple definition would be that prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words of something God has spontaneously brought to mind. And you can see, pause, why I would say some of those things I mentioned earlier might fall under this umbrella of prophecy. So, there's our description of what we believe New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy would be. The Spirit spontaneously brings something to your mind, a revelation as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 14, the Spirit revealing something to you. 
could be a picture in your mind. It could be a word or words. It could be a, a dream. It might even be a vision of some sort as the Bible talks about. God is sovereign. He's all-powerful, can do anything. And you then, when you receive this from the Spirit, you report or you share that in your own words. Now, we would not look at this like it's just a foretelling of the future. Uh, A lot of people think prophecy is just some prediction of future events. Now, it could be, it it could be that the the Spirit, with this gift of prophecy, does somehow tip you off to some future event. Event. We see it in Acts 11 with Agabus. New Testament prophet, it says, who foretold, Acts 11 says, by the Spirit that a famine was coming. And it did. How did he know? It was revealed to him by the Spirit of God, and he then spoke it, a famine was coming. And the Spirit, listen, the Spirit, could the Holy Spirit do something like that today? actually reveal something to you about something that was coming in the future. Now, you may not see it perfectly. Could the Spirit do that? We would say absolutely yes. And there were actually documented reports, documented, before the Twin Towers fell of Christians in New York City who had dreams beforehand of some coming calamity in that area, and then it came. So it could be some sort of, 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 of a future something, but prophecy is not just about the future, a foretelling. No, it, prophecy could be anything that the Spirit sovereignly, spontaneously reveals to you that you would then share or report to other people. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says that a prophecy will edify or exhort or will console. So it could be anything that the Spirit gives to you that you then share, and it edifies, it exhorts, it consoles the entire church, maybe, or a certain person or, or people. Or 1 Corinthians 14.25 says that a prophecy can disclose the secrets of a person's heart. A prophecy can reveal or uncover something that has been hidden in that person's heart or life. It could be that you're in a counseling situation maybe, and the Spirit just suddenly reveals to you something about that person's past. And you just suddenly have a sense, not because of anything you've heard from the person, but you have a sense that there was some sort of, of physical or sexual abuse in this person's past. And you then very gently ask, and the person just immediately begins to weep and begins to open it up to you. I have had instances in counseling situations where I've been absolutely stuck. And I have prayed under my breath, Father, help me, help me, help me, help me. And there have been many times where I've then had an idea or a thought. I had a question once, clear as could be, that all of a sudden I had in my mind, a question I had not considered before. I asked the question, and the woman instantly began to weep. 
And I would consider that as some sort of prophetic thing from the Lord. We don't always know what to call it. Is that an utterance of knowledge? Is it an utterance of wisdom? Is it the pizza I ate last night? I don't really care because the Lord used it. And I'll get to that in just a minute. (laughs) You know, it could also maybe be a sin in a person's life that they've hidden. And the Spirit reveals it, discloses it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Sam Storm says this, On numerous occasions I have witnessed this phenomenon. Men and women who believe their thoughts, their fantasies, their sins, and their plans for the future were secretly hidden, even from God, were shocked by the revelatory activity of the Spirit. The Spirit just sovereignly revealing that to somebody. Or that thing with Spurgeon. The Holy Spirit just revealing to him somehow those stolen gloves. Maybe an utterance of knowledge. Or I'd probably call that more of a prophetic word. The Spirit just sovereignly revealing to Spurgeon something he could not have known otherwise. Wayne Grudem says this about prophecy. He says, It is something that God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. It may be that the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from the person's own train of thought, or that it is accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence, or in some other way, it gives the person a rather clear sense that it is from the Lord. And you then share it, in your own words, which means that you might not share that thing perfectly. The Spirit gives you the revelation, could be a dream or a word or, or a, a picture of some sort, and the revelation coming from God is perfect, but you then interpret the thing in your mind, you speak it in your own words, and your interpretation of the way you communicate it might have some imperfection. We see that in Acts 21 with Agabus. He received this prophetic revelation that Paul would be persecuted in Jerusalem. And it was right on target. But as he interpreted and communicated that revelation, some of the details he gave were inaccurate. His prophetic word, a mixture of truth and error. is one of the reasons why Paul tells us to test all supposed prophetic words. Because, listen, somebody comes up to you and they says they have a prophecy or something like that. I think the Holy Spirit is telling. It's possible that might not be a revelation from the Spirit at all. They might have just eaten some bad pizza uh, the night before and just missed it entirely. So you test anything that people would say they think might be some sort of prophetic word from the Lord. Or they might have actually received something from the Spirit to dream or a picture, a word, but their interpretation of it and their communication of it then is a little bit off. So Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast, what is good. Or, 
1 Corinthians 14, 29, he says this, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So all prophecies or anything somebody would tell you they think they heard from the Spirit of God that might be for you, it must be tested first and foremost according to Scripture. It must line up with, be in harmony with Scripture. The Holy Spirit will never, ever give you anything that would contradict or supersede or go above or replace in any way God's written word. Anything the Spirit might do will always line up with God's Word. So we must test everything. Test it with Scripture. We should not, Paul commands, we should not despise prophecy, but we should test everything, hold fast to that which is good. John Piper says this. He says, The spiritual gift of prophecy is spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, but mixed with human imperfection and fallibility, and therefore in need of sifting. So, we will go into more background, why we say this, why all the different things that go along with this. we just leave that right now. That's a little description. This New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy, as the elders here would describe it. It is, as Wayne Grudem says, the human report in one's own words of something that the Spirit spontaneously brings to mind Now, pause for just a second. Because there's something here that is just so important for all of us to understand in this discussion. It is possible that you're here today And you believe that the spiritual gift of prophecy is no longer active. Some Christians, as I've mentioned, they believe certain spiritual gifts ceased. In the first century, when the twelve apostles died, a position called cessationism. I have many cessationist friends. And they believe that one of the gifts that ceased was prophecy. And if that is you... You believe the gift of prophecy is no longer active, that is okay. And I I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Just know that the elders here believe that the gift of prophecy is still active. We are continuationists, so we believe all of the gifts continue. But listen, here's the thing that is just so important for all of us to recognize, and please hear me when I say this. Those types of things that I just described to you, the Holy Spirit spontaneously, supernaturally bringing something to a Christian's mind or impressing something on a Christian's heart or conscience, those things I just described to you, please hear this. Most cessationists today believe 
that the Spirit still does those things today. Most cessationists still believe that God does those things today. Now, they do not call it prophecy. And I will respect that. They believe the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy was something different than what I just described. And they say then that that thing passed away. And I'll get into that later. But I just want you to catch today the common ground that exists between both cessationists and continuationists. What I just described to you The Spirit spontaneously, supernaturally bringing things to mind at times, impressing things on a believer's heart or conscience. We both believe the Spirit does those things. Most cessationists anyway. Now, we have a different terminology for it. The elders here at this church would call it prophecy. We believe that's biblical. The cessationists would call it something different. But we both believe that the Spirit does those things. I have a quote here. I have a quote here from one of the most gracious and humble and well-respected cessationists today. Tom Schreiner. He has become one of my best friends on the cessationist side of things because he's humble He is gracious. He is gentle in the way he speaks. That is not the way these things are always handled. There have been people on both sides of the fence. I read a quote the other day where one, I won't tell you which side, called for an all-out war on people at the other side. And can I just say, that is out of line. That is out of line. That is not done in love. Not gentle, not humble, not gracious, not respecting many well-known, many strong Christians on the other side of the line. There are Christians on both sides here, and let's just do it humbly and graciously. And that is, that is Tom Schreiner. He is a cessationist. This man is gracious. He's humble. He's very well-respected. And I just want you to notice here that this cessationist, Tom Schreiner, Though he calls it something different here, these things that I just described, he doesn't call it prophecy because he thinks that gift of prophecy was something different and has passed away. So he calls these things I've just described, he calls them impressions that the Spirit gives to believers. Doesn't call them prophecy, he calls them impressions. But what I want you to see here is how he agrees with what I just described, that the Holy Spirit does these things. Here it is. This is Tom Schreiner. Here's what he says. It is better, from his cessationist position, it is better, he says, to characterize what is happening today as the sharing of impressions rather than prophecy. God may impress something on a person's heart and mind, And he may use such impressions to help others in their spiritual walk. Catch what he says here. It is a matter of definition. What some people call prophecies, like me, are actually, according to the cessationist, impressions. 
where someone senses that God is leading them to speak to someone or to make some kind of statement about a situation. Sometimes, he says, in a most remarkable way, these impressions might be completely right. God may lay something on someone's heart and it may be exactly right and exactly what a person needs to hear. Sometimes the impression might be quite astonishing and clearly miraculous, though this is quite rare. On the other hand, sometimes impressions are totally wrong. And it is evident that the words shared are neither helpful nor true. And some impressions may be a mixture of truth and error. Catch this. The difference between cessationist and continuationist is, in some ways, insignificant at the practical level when it comes to prophecy. For what continuationists call prophecy, cessationists call impressions. As a cessationist, Tom Schreiner says, catch this, I affirm that God may speak to His people through impressions, and there are occasions where impressions are startlingly accurate. Just notice that last sentence again. As a cessationist, he says, I affirm that God may speak to his people through impressions. Catch that. Tom Schreiner, one of the most well-respected cessationists, just said that God can speak not only through His Word, but God also speaking at times through these impressions, as he calls them, which I would simply call prophecy. And I don't know if you catch this or not, but that right there is massive, common ground between continuationists and cessationists. It is, to a large degree, as Schreiner says, just a matter of definition, a matter of semantics, a matter of words. And the difference, he says, at the practical level is in some ways insignificant. I would call it prophecy, believe that's what the spiritual gift of prophecy is, what I just described. You, however, you might feel more comfortable just calling them impressions. That the Spirit sovereignly lays on a believer's mind or heart. And you know what? I am perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I don't really care what we call these things. I just want to be in a church that truly believes that the Holy Spirit actually does those things. I want to be in a church that looks for the sovereign leading of the Holy Spirit. A church that trusts that the Spirit can at times spontaneously bring things to your mind or impress things on your conscience, things for you to share with other people for their good. Things that will help them, encourage them, console them, edify them. Call it whatever you will. I just want to be in a church that believes God still speaks. Through His Word, for sure, yes. But also, as Schreiner just said, through the Holy Spirit. Through impressions 
or what I would call prophecy that will always be in line and accord with and subject to God's written word when they are from the Holy Spirit. And, and can you see then? It, it's very similar to last week with the gifts of healings and of miracles. The cessationists believe the spiritual gifts of healings and miracles are no longer active, but cessationists still believe God heals today. That God still works miracles today. That's the reason they pray for those things. And cessationists believe the gift of prophecy is no longer active, but they still believe God gives impressions, spontaneously, sovereignly bringing things to mind for you to share with other believers. And I'm fine with that. I am fine with that. just want to be in a church that believes God does these things. You know, I mentioned last week, one of the primary reasons that we're doing this series on the spiritual gifts, here it is. We just want to become more aware as a church that the all-powerful, sovereign God of this universe, He is truly with us. He is in us right now at all times in the person of the Holy Spirit. And our God can do anything. Anything. He does all that He pleases in heaven and on earth. And this all-powerful, sovereign God who is with us, He leads us very intimately. He directs us. He empowers us. He works miracles at times. He works healings at times. Call them whatever you want. He even speaks to us at times through impressions or what I would call prophecy. We just want to become more aware as a church that God does those things. We want to look for God to do them. We want to pray for, for God to do them. But you know what? In my experience with the spiritual gifts, here's what it comes down to. You, you know what ends up happening? Is you have one person on this side of the fence arguing that it's called this. You have another person on this side of the fence arguing that it's called that. And all of a sudden, all you do is have a bunch of Christians arguing over words. Semantics. And now suddenly you don't have Christians who actually believe that God does these things. You don't have Christians who are actually looking for God to do these things. You're just arguing. That's all it is. Just arguing over words. And it's out of line. It's not what God had planned for his church. So let's recognize the common ground among believers. Let's dig our heels in. Let's look for God to lead us. Through impressions, if you call them that, or through what I would call prophecy. Because God does these things. Wayne Grudem tells of a Baptist church a few years back, their missionary speaker that day paused mid-sentence, and he said, I did not plan to say this, but it seems that the Lord is indicating, which this is the way to share if you feel the Lord, you don't come out and say, thus saith God. That's not helpful. Chances are it was your pizza that you ate last night. The way you say it is like this. This missionary speaker in this Baptist church pauses. I didn't plan to say this, but it seems the Lord is indicating that someone in this church has just walked out on his wife and family. If that is so, let me tell you that God wants you to return to them and to follow God's pattern for family life. And in the unlit balcony sat a man who just entered a church building for the first time in his life, had just left his wife and kids. And after the service, he made himself known to the speaker. He acknowledged his sin. He returned to his family, and he began to follow Christ. I would call that a prophetic word. You are more than welcome to call that an impression. Let's just acknowledge together that God did that, and God can do that. 
Or Spurgeon again, preaching on another occasion, the Spirit again just sovereignly directing Spurgeon to say something that landed on a man in the audience. Levi shared this a few months back. The man later described his experience like this. The man said this, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me when he was preaching as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I had kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just profit. But how he should know that, what he's saying is he had stolen five pence. And there were only four pence really real profit in it, but he took the, the rest. And how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. And Spurgeon later said this, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it, and so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all things I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only soul, but I have known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I've sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbow because they had got a smart hit and they had been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher just told us what we said to one another when we went in at the door. I would call it prophecy. You might call it impressions. Let's just acknowledge together that God does these things and let's look for him to do it. I have a video for you. We're going to be closing with this. Some of you may know the name Jonathan David Helzer. He's a contemporary Christian music artist. He wrote a song called No Longer Slaves. It won a worship song. It won worship song of the year at GMA Dove Awards. And this video is Jonathan David's father telling the story about Jonathan David's birth, this singer. And you'll see Jonathan David himself singing in this video. Go ahead and invite the worship team up front. Call it whatever you want. I don't care. There's a chance when you heard some of the words, you didn't like them. The man saying he saw Jesus. Or the word prophet. Okay. That's fine. All the grace in the world to you. Please just recognize, because of what that man told to him, they went back and had another test on his wife's womb. And she was healed. And this young man, Jonathan David, is now praising the Lord, just as the man said. Our God is alive. He's alive. He he lives. He's all-powerful. He moves, he speaks, he heals, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. May God help us to believe it.
and to look for him to lead us. Father, we bless you and we just turn to you as a church. And we would say, we just join together, just picturing linking arms and just say, so much we don't understand about the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts. Father, I've presented something today. It's where I stand today. I don't know where I'll be in 20 years. It just, these, are, these things are not easy, but here we stand, Lord. And, 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 and we just say yes to you. We believe you're all-powerful. We believe you work in and through your Holy Spirit today. We don't always know how. We don't always know what to call it. But, oh, Lord God, please deliver us from being a church that just argues about words. Please help us, Father, to graciously embrace one another and look to our all-powerful God to lead us. Father, forgive us for the ways we've just thrown rocks across the fence that people on the other sides of the camp forgive us for the the hostile words that have been spoken to well-meaning believers. God, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us. It is that hostility that will quench your spirit more than any certain words. It is that hostility, Father, in our hearts, the division. And Father, it's just contrary to 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll be in, which is all about love. The most important thing with all the gifts is that we would love one another. So, Father, forgive us. And I pray for our church, oh God, that you pour out your Spirit upon us. You pour out your Spirit upon us. You pour out your Spirit, Lord God, upon us. Whatever that might mean, and whatever we might then call it, all the manifestations of the Spirit, you'd be pleased to give us. And, Father, we do know one thing that will quench your Spirit is fear. It is fear, Lord God. It is suspicion. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Father, deliver us from a fear that would keep us from trying and keep us from seeking and searching and and looking. God, deliver us. Give us freedom, the joy of your sons and daughters. Father, help us, we pray. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.